Our scripture today is the whole chapter of Deuteronomy 11. Um, Stay with me. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And consider today, since I am not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm, his signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land, and what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses, and to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day, and what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. For your eyes have seen all the great work that the Lord, that he did. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of, it is not like the land of Egypt, from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it, from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commands that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full." Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the Lord and the land yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates, that Your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast to him, then 
the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. And when the Lord of your, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not beyond the Jordan, west of the road, toward the going down of the sun, in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the oak of Moray? For you are to cross over the Jordan and go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And when you possess it and live in it, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I am setting before you today. God's word for us. If I have not met you, my name is Chris, and it is a privilege for me to serve here at Kingsway as one of the pastors. I want to begin this morning by saying greetings and happy Father's Day. Buenos dias. Feliz Dia del Padre. It is with thanksgiving to God that I celebrate Father's Day today, having been given the gift of four amazing children that I don't deserve. And now two amazing children-in-laws, can I say that? A daughter-in-law and a son-in-law. And also the gift of two grandchildren thus far. So I love that. And also today speaks freshly to me of God's gift to me of a father who has gone on to be with Jesus, who was an amazing example to me and a role model. I also give thanks to many examples of fathers whose example uh, I seek to emulate, whose shoulders I stand upon, many who are in this church. So I celebrate today with thanks to God. If you have not done so, I invite you to open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 11. We've been on a series through the book of Deuteronomy. We're seeing how Moses is preparing the children of Israel to enter the promised land. As a good leader, he's seeking to prepare their hearts and their minds to live in a manner both pleasing to God in a way that would give them good success. Today, we will discuss his wise exhortation to love and to serve God above all else. But before we do, will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can know the God of this word. Lord, we desperately need to hear and to apply. So we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit now to come and to minister to our hearts. 
And so, Lord Jesus, now, would you take my lips and would you speak through them? Would you take our minds, would you think through them? Would you take our hearts and set them on fire with love for yourself? And would you take our wills and bend them to be your own? We ask this for your name's sake, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, if you are here today, I assume that at some level you're interested in the things of God or interested in living the Christian life or interested in seeking life God's way. As we've seen all through the book of Deuteronomy, living life God's way requires more than just adhering to his outward moral rules. Just being a follower in name only and not in belief or not in action really misses the point. Just doing Christian things does not make us a Christian. Just like we cannot say we're a car just because we sleep in a garage. Or just because we come out of McDonald's doesn't make us a hamburger. As funny as those things might be, sometimes we evaluate our relationship with God just by checking off that we've done the Christian-like thing. We've done the Christian good deed. And we can forget that God is calling his people to more. God calls his people to a deep, heartfelt love and faith and trust in God. And a trust that affects the decision of our wills. So today, as we look at the discussion of this text, I want to ask us to think about two questions. Firstly, can God be trusted? Which is to say, is God who he says he is? Will he do what he said that he has promised to do? Would you bet your life on it? Can God be trusted? Second question, is he acting for my good? Is what he tells me really for my good? Will he provide what I really need? And if I neglect him, will there really be consequences? How we answer those questions, how we really answer those questions in our heart is critical. Can God be trusted? Is he acting for my good? The section of scripture is the final chapter of Moses' speech that he began back in chapter 5. It's a summary, if you will, of the previous five chapters where Moses is challenging the children of Israel to believe and to hold fast to God. He's re-presenting the law that he gave back at Mount Sinai before they entered into the wilderness and into the time of wandering for 40 years. Recall they did not do such a good job obeying the Lord. And now as they prepare to enter the promised land, he knows that for their success, they must review and renew their covenant commitment to keeping the law of God. The promised land would be a place of incredible abundance, incredible blessing, and as we read, a land flowing with milk and honey, but it would also be a place of conflict, of temptation, and opposition by those who would fight against the Lord. 
And Moses, as a good shepherd and spiritual father, is seeking to prepare their hearts to live successfully, to conquer, and to live a victorious life. And as a wise leader, he knows this is going to require a deep heart-level trust and faith in God. He knew that just a cold, semi-interest in the things of God would not sustain their faith. But perhaps most importantly, he knows that they will never get to the depths of their heart, never get to the surrendering of their wills if they do not answer the question, who do they love most and who do they trust most in this life? So let's look at our text. Moses begins this chapter in verse 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, keep his statutes, his rules and commandments always. This resounds throughout the chapter. Verse 13, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Verse 22, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways and holding fast to him. Recall back from chapter 10, verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul? You shall love the Lord your God. Sound familiar? Certainly one of the most famous texts in all of the Old and New Testaments Jesus said that the greatest commandment was this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Christianity is very different than every other religion. It calls us to a personal, loving, intimate relationship with God where we become engaged at the heart level at the level of our wills. So the main point of my message today is this. For the Christian, the call to follow Christ is a call to love and obey him wholeheartedly. For the Christian, the call to follow Christ is a call to love and obey him wholeheartedly, especially in light of what he has done. Yet how do we do this? How do we practically do this? How do we love the Lord as we're called to love him? Is it by sheer willpower? Just tell my heart, I will love God. Is it by making an accountability list, checking it twice? Is it by attending church, never missing, by having my quiet time, never missing that? While those things are critical, while they're important, if not combined with faith, if not combined with love for God, they will miss the point of obedience of faith. Last week, Caleb did a great job teeing this up for us, chapter 10, and shows us to fear and love God really means to consume all our hearts. This includes getting to the depths of our stubborn wills. He used the phrase, circumcise our hearts, which means to deal with our stubbornness. Well, how do we do that? 
How do you really get to the level of your will? Well, I think today we find from Moses some immense help. So Moses takes us by the hand and he calls us to consider the mighty acts of God, God's kindness to the children of Israel. And then in light of that, exhorts us to a rightful response, a response of love and obedience. Please note in verse 2 that Moses uses the word consider. And he uses the word consider two times. That's not by accident. Consider. It doesn't mean just think about. It means roll it over in your minds. Think hard about. Think hard about with a view towards action. And of course, in this case, it's an action of loving God. The Puritan Thomas Brooks reminds us, it's not the hasty reading, but serious meditating upon holy and heavenly truths that make them prove sweet and profitable to the soul. It's not the bee touching the flower that gathers the honey, but her abiding for a time upon the flower that draws out the sweet. It's not he that, remind, that reads most, but he that meditates most that will prove the choicest sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christian. Did that for you, Caleb. So forgive, please, my play on words here, but please, let's consider Moses' exhortation to consider with three particular considerations. And these will be the three points of my message. And may they stir love and faith for us. Number one, Consider God's mighty works in the past. Consider God's mighty works in the past. Moses says to consider the mighty acts that God did to Pharaoh. Verse 2, consider his mighty hand, his outstretched arm. Perhaps that takes them to a remembrance of Pharaoh's armies bearing down upon them, trapping them between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's armies. There was, humanly speaking, no escape, certain death if God did not intervene. Notice how Moses gets to the details, again, not by accident. He reminds them of the army, Pharaoh's horses, the chariots, the water, the Red Sea, the impending destruction. If God did not act, yet... God, verse 4, made the water flow over the Egyptians, destroyed them, as it says, to this day. God acted mightily on behalf to deliver them. Then verse 5, remember that he, what he did to you in the wilderness. Consider how God miraculously provided for you in the wilderness, preserving, your, preserving you 40 years and caring for you by feeding you with quail and manna, and guiding you. Did you ever think of how God did that? Did you ever think of the daily miracle that God provided food for them from nowhere? How did he do that? And yet he did. Verse 6, consider what misery and destruction God wrought on Dathan and Abiram, who regularly opposed the work and leadership of Moses and were antagonistic towards the work of God. God removed them by opening up the ground and swallowing up everything about them. 
their families, their tents. Again, God showed his power by uniting and keeping the people of Israel together. God acted mightily, miraculously, to deliver, to rescue, to protect, to provide for the children of Israel. The considerations of these things are intended to bring the reader to a love and a reverence for God. Humble confession that he is a good father. For the Christian, we too have mighty God. We have a mighty demonstration of his love and power. As we sang about, we were released from the slavery to bondage of sin. We were given a mighty gift in Christ. Christ's death on the cross is no less a mighty and miraculous work of God. And in fact, the exodus and all of that pales, pales in comparison to what we've been given in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we too had an army of sin holding us captive. Slavery to death. We too had no way out. We too were bound to a master we could not escape from. Yet, praise be to God, he made a way of escape. As Christians, we have far more to be thankful for. Amen? And if that's not enough, as Moses reminded the children of Israel, so we must remember. Why did he set his love on us? He set his love on us not because we have perfect obedience, not because we are moral, not because we agree with him and we think God's way is the best, not because somehow we deserve it. He set his love on us because of his choice. He chose to set his love upon us and he delivered that love only through Jesus Christ. What amazing grace. Do you see that apart from God's power, you and I were the Dathan and Abiram? We deserve the destruction, yet he took the destruction on himself so we could go free. What amazing truth. Colossians tells us, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal commands. This he did, nailing it to the cross. When you come in today, you have a record of debt. But if you are a believer, that record of debt is gone. It's been nailed to the cross. It's gone. That's good news. Paul tells us in Ephesians that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. That's what we bring to God, our trespasses. That's what we offer to God, our trespasses. Don't, let's not flatter ourselves. We don't somehow qualify because we're now Christians. We offer to God today our sin. What he gives us in response is his grace. Yes, we love him. 
but we continue to be debtors to his grace. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We were in bondage to sin. We had a debt we could not repay. God nailed that debt to the cross. He made us alive together with Christ. It's all of grace. That's wonderful freedom. That's wonderful news, and it's all to God's glory alone. So point number one, consider God's mighty works in the past and let your heart be filled with love for him. Point number two, consider God's present care by giving his words and laws. Consider God's present care by giving his words and laws. The promised land, though it would be filled with abundance and blessing, it would also be filled with temptation and deceit, with temptation to follow and serve other gods. What an incredible kindness that God would grant to his people access and understanding of his word. What a strength for them. Moses knew, however, that half-hearted commitment to the word would not be sufficient to keep them from falling prey to a myriad of deceptions. Let me say that again, because it's relevant for us. Moses knew, however, that half-hearted commitment to the word of God would not be sufficient for them to keep them from falling prey to a myriad of deceptions. It would require careful submission to the whole counsel of God. So he belabors his point. Verse 1. Keep the charge, keep the statutes, keep his rules. Verse 8, keep the whole commandment. And now I invite you to look over verse 18. He says, lay up these words in your heart and in your soul. Bind them as a sign on your hand, as frontlets between your eyes. He's saying in essence, among other things, keep them right before you, always be reminded of them, and build your life around them. Build your life around the word of God. Moses is careful several times to exhort them to use great care. Use great care in obeying the words of God. Be careful to do the word of God, all that he's commanded. Use great care. When do you use great care? I think of a surgeon doing some type of surgery using great care. Or a computer programming using programmer using great care. All the more relevant for us as we apply the word of God. Use great care. And then he brings this sober caution in verse 16. Take care lest your heart be deceived. Deceived. And you turn aside and serve other gods. Brings echoes of James 1.22. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The danger is that we can be near the word, surrounded by the word, listening to the word, hear the word, and neglect to do the word. That's a danger. And the Bible says that is a form of deception. Deception's not being just fooled. There is an intent 
to destroy. Deception. We can be deceived. So think of the way that we are regularly bombarded by media to be deceived. Think of the way that it says that our happiness and fulfillment and identity rests in the way that we look. Or our happiness rests in our next purchase. Or a bigger home. Or a bigger bank account. Or a better job. Those things seem to chase us incessantly. And they vie for our allegiance. But even more so, think of the philosophies, the many false philosophies that come against us. They seek to confuse us, seek to make us turn away from biblical truth. Philosophies like, good Christians will be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. Or philosophy like, the worst offense you can do to someone else is to tell them that the way they're living is not acceptable to God. Or the philosophy, all good people, regardless of what they believe, will in the end go to heaven. God will just be fine with them. Or Jesus was a really good guy. He was a good teacher. But he's really not the only way to heaven. None of those philosophies are in the Bible. They're not true. And yet we are inundated regularly in the air we breathe with those philosophies. Moses says, take care lest you're deceived by the gods and philosophies of the land. And so he calls the people of God, make God's word primary and central in their lives. Heed the word of God and blessing will come. Ignore the word of God and you invite devastation. It was to be central and primary in the lives of the children of Israel. That counsel is equally true for the Christian. And so on Sunday morning, we regularly seek to read the word, to discuss the word, to sing the word, and at times recite the word that we might apply and do the word. This practice comes from scripture. It's a historic practice that the church has done for centuries. Um, a shout out to our scripture readers who on Sunday morning rehearse and read the word of God to us. They do us a great service. The word of God ought to be something that is prevalent and present in our homes. Something that we refer to in conversation. Deuteronomy says that when you are sitting, when you are walking, when you are laying in your bed, when you are at your family's home, let the word of God come out. It ought to be something that we reflect upon, that we study. I love the old famous Anglican church prayer. It says it well. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant us that we may in such wise hear them, read them, mark them, learn them, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort, the Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given in our Savior Jesus Christ. So a few questions. 
How can we strengthen our personal study and application of the word of God? When was the last time that you evaluated your personal Bible study plan? Do you have a regular Bible study time? What's the practice of your study time? Fathers, there's a direct command for us in here that we teach our children the truths of God's word. We're called to teach our children who God is, what he's done, and most importantly, why we believe him and why we love him. That needs to come from us. It's not something that we can delegate, not something that we can allow simply for them to get on their own. It's something that we are called to communicate to our children. So fathers, what's your plan? It's never too late, never too late to start. I love the words in the Apostle Paul who admonishes us this in Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart to God. In summary, God demonstrated his power and love and care and his glory by giving us his word. My question is, does your current relationship with the, with the word reflect its value? Does our current relationship with the word reflect its value? So point two, consider that God cares for us by giving his word and he calls us to build our life around it. Point number three, consider God's promise in the future. The children of Israel would face much opposition because of the God they served. It's true for us. We'll face opposition because of the God we serve. Yet God held out promise, blessing, ultimate victory for their future if they would believe and abide by his word. Moses makes very clear that God would do what he promised. Verse 22 through 25, the Lord would drive out nations. He'd give them territory. He'd give them security. He'd provide for their needs. He'd be their defense. He'd bring them into the land of abundance. Moses makes it clear. God's got this. He's got the future. He knows what he's doing. He's God and he knows it. I trust him. That wasn't Moses' concern. Moses' concern was, would the children of Israel keep God's word? Would they keep his statutes? Especially when they're tempted, discouraged, opposed, under trial, and in conflict for their faith. Would they remain faithful to God? Moses trusted the promise of God. And Moses could speak from personal experience. Recall, Moses chose to trust God at great cost and great discomfort to his own life. Consider that Moses chose suffering and affliction. He left the ease and the luxury of Pharaoh's court in order to be enslaved with the children of Israel. Enslaved, oppressed, destitute, tormented, and afflicted. 
Consider that he chose a company of despised, poor, rejected people. They were looked down upon. They were social outcasts. Consider that he chose scorn, reproach, social mockery, and a life of ridicule. He left the life of the wise and respected with servants to do his every bidding. He left the life of luxury in this world speaking. He had it all. Fame, renown, power, and wealth beyond what could be imagined. People I imagine no doubt thought Moses must have been mad. He must have blown a gasket. What are you doing, Moses? Why are you giving it up? Do you see what you're doing? Do you see the fun you're missing, Moses? Do you see the wealth you're giving up? And for what? For a silly story? For a God that you cannot see? You're throwing away this future for what? But Moses had been giving something, given something far more satisfying and far more valuable than Pharaoh or this world could ever give him. He was given a relationship with the living God who controlled every hair on Pharaoh's head, every breath that he took. Moses knew this God. He came to know him personally, and he trusted and loved this amazing God. Regarding Moses' choices, J.C. Ryle helps us, and he says this, Wonder not that he chose affliction, a despised people, and a reproach. He beheld things below the surface. He saw with the eye of faith the affliction lasting but for a moment. Reproach rolled away, an ending in everlasting honor, and the despised people of God, get this, reigning as kings with Christ in glory forever. May God give us that vision. Moses believed that God was all wise and he would keep his promise and for whom nothing, nothing was impossible. Well, I have to admit that I used to be bothered by the fact that the children of Israel went into the promised land and Moses wasn't permitted to enter in. I used to think, Lord, that's unfair. What's up with that? However, in studying this passage, I was once again humbled and had to shut my mouth, as I often do, as I recognized, firstly, that there is a consequence for disobedience. Moses disobeyed God, and as a leader of God's people, the stakes were high. God shows no partiality. Secondly, Moses was disciplined, not cut off from the people of God or God's promises. And thirdly, thirdly, Moses appears again, hundreds of years after his death, 
And when he appears, he's not only alive, but he's with Jesus, speaking of the transfiguration. And where did that take place? In the promised land. God kept his promises to Moses far beyond what Moses ever imagined or thought. And for the Christian looking through the lens of the cross, we have all more reason to trust God. Amen? The Apostle Paul helps us. Colossians, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.9. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. I love to imagine. I love to imagine. But I know it's beyond my imagination. Romans 8, 18. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Moses trusted God for the things that he could not see. How are we doing with that? Brothers and sisters, as we follow God, Moses calls us to consider who he is, and what he's done. Consider God's mighty acts of salvation, delivering us from sin through the death of his son, crucifying him in our place. Consider how he's prepared and holds our future, a glorious inheritance with him forever. Consider how he gives his word to presently care for us, to lead us, to guide us. His word will always prove true. Our place is to trust him. So in light of these considerations, what type of person ought we to be? Hebrews says it well. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Amen. Questions. Are we drawing near or are we holding back from God? Are you holding fast to the confession of your faith? Would your private life agree with that? Where might the weeds of deception have begun to grow in your own mind? Are you trusting Christ to cleanse you? Perhaps have you forgotten of the grace of Christ? Are you regularly drawing near to Christ with a heart of love? Again, from J.C. Ryle, we read this. It's well to be acquainted with the doctrines and principles of Christianity. It's better to be acquainted with Christ himself. It's well to be familiar with faith and grace and justification and sanctification. 
but it's better to be familiar with Jesus himself, to see the king's own face and to behold his beauty. Don't you long for that? Don't you long, brothers and sisters, for the day where we will see his face and we will behold his beauty far beyond what we could imagine. That's our hope. That's our future. This is one secret of eminent holiness. He that would be conformed to Christ's image must be, and become a Christ-like man must be constantly studying Christ himself. So where are we tempted to waver from trusting God? If your heart is running and in rebellion to God, please stop. Please turn your eyes to Jesus and consider that God has power that you do not know. He's able to help. He's able to change your heart. If you're lacking vision, if you're lacking faith, how are you going to make it through the next test or temptation or trial or difficulty? Please consider many saints, many saints have been where you are, same place. God sustained them. He delivered them. Trust him. And finally, as Moses has taught us, Consider God's acts in the past. God is who he says he is. Consider God's promise for the future. He will do what he has promised. And consider his care for the present. He's working for your good. Build your life around his word. And I close with the famous words of the hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, which says... Turn your eye upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the way that you have acted on behalf of your people. Thank you, Father, for the amazing gift that you have given in giving your son for our redemption. Father, our prayer, our desire is to honor you with our lives in trust and obedience to your word. So, Lord, help us. Help our feeble hearts and minds to trust you to remember and consider all the ways that you have and will care for your people. We ask this for your name's sake, Lord Jesus. Amen.